Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. We'll, we'll keep going. There's uh, handouts in the back. So we're going to continue through uh, the book that we've been working through, Deity and Decree by Sam Renahan. So this morning we're in chapter 9 on what is the decree. So this morning we're going to start thinking about God's decree. And uh, again, as it, as it has been, this is mostly following or following loosely from the book. And so, uh, so we'll go from there. And as has been our habit, what I wanted to do was to continue to inject in our lesson uh, um, the Baptist Catechism. Because it becomes a very quick, shorthand way for us to remember theology. Deep, but yet pithy, succinct statements that help us remember some of these deep truths that we confess. So what we'll do with... Uh, what. Um, with this catechism, uh, we'll do questions 10 and 11. So I'll do the question, and then we'll respond with the answer, and then we'll go into uh, to the confession. So question 10, what are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. All right, very good. Question 11. How does God execute his decrees? Answer. God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. All right, awesome. Yeah, so again, really succinct ways that will help kind of guide what we're going to be looking at over the next two months as we finish out this, uh, uh, the end of this lesson. And as we've talked about, a lot of what this book is doing is it's not only helping us to unpack what the Bible talks about in regards to thinking about the doctrine of God and then thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity or triunity of God. Um, And what we did was we were really also trying to help unpack and explain some of these words as they're used in our confession, as we saw in the London Baptist Confession, chapter two. And now what we're going to do is now going from chapter two, going into chapter three, going into God's decree. So we've studied God and, uh, and, and the Trinity, and now we're going to go into the works of God. And there's, there's kind of a logical flow to this. So if I can have a volunteer, can I have someone read paragraph three, uh, or sorry, chapter three, paragraph one, where it says, God uh, hath decreed in himself. I'd be willing to read that. Right? From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and in his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decrees. All right, excellent. And then can I have a volunteer read uh, chapter 3, paragraph 2? All right, excellent. So with, with our lesson, what we're going to be doing basically for the next eight weeks, so we've got four chapters and we're working you know, two, uh, two lessons um, per chapter. So what we're really going to be covering is thinking through or thinking deeply in regards to the doctrine of God's decree. And there's, I think there's a total of seven paragraphs in chapter three. And what we're going to do uh, the next, I think, three or four weeks is really going to focus high level on God's decree in general, and then really unpacking paragraphs one and two. And then next month, really the focus is going to really focus in on one particular aspect of God's decree, and that is predestination, right? So when we think about the doctrine of election and and, and things of that flavor. So we'll really, so we're going to start out generally thinking about God's decree, and then we're going to focus more intently thinking about the doctrine of election, as does our confession, to kind of help think through uh, and, and make some of the appropriate nuances that become very helpful as we think about this. So, so God's decree. As we think about this from an introduction standpoint, um, there was something that Sam Renahan said that was, that was helpful. 
And that is uh, this. The, the first two parts of this book, right, studied God and himself in unity and trinity. And this third part studies all things outside of God. And all things outside of God are creation. All that exists, creation, exists because God decreed its existence. Why and for what purpose did God create all things? The doctrine of the decree answers these questions. So then when we think about how, so decrees are used, right? When we look at scripture and we look at earthly kings, right? There's kings and they'll give a decree, right? You know, it'll be a, a statement that goes out from King Nebuchadnezzar or, a, you know, King Artaxerxes. There's these different kings and they give decrees. But we're, we're going to um, hone in and think specifically about God's decree. So then that requires us to help define it. <clears throat> and from a definition, um, you can see there on your notes uh, with what Renahan helpfully provides it in his little book. Who'd be willing to read that definition? The decree is the act. Crystal? The decree is the act of God by which he determines absolutely the existence and infallible future or futurition of all that is outside of himself to the praise of his own glory, the first cause and director of all things, the antecedent and governor of all events. All right, excellent. So... We see that it's an act of God, and it is where he is determining, right? So it is, it is purposing. There is this element in which it is God determining what comes to pass, right? And then there's some qualifiers with that, absolutely. Um, uh, and it's all things that become, um, uh, come into existence infallibly, and it's all that is outside of himself. And then similar to our catechism where it says, to the praise of his own glory, with God being the first cause and director of all, all things, the antecedent, and then governor of all events. And this, again, and one of the things that's really beautiful, and uh, you'll read this in different guides when they talk about our confession, that the way that our confession was, you know, built or, you know, the architect theme behind it is it's building off of chapter two. We go into chapter three, and then the decree sets the platform for creation and providence. And then when we get to providence, it's going to go right back to what happened in decree, right? Because God's providence, his sovereign outworking of all things that he's determined shows itself in, in history, right? In, in, in providence. And it assumes a lot of the things that are already discussed. So we're going to see some of that as, as we get into this. So, um, so with that, what I wanted to do, we're going to take some time to really dive in from an introductory standpoint and then to start to put some qualifications. Well, then what kind of an act is it of God and how do we nuance it and, and, and make these appropriate uh, qualifications to help us distinguish? So the first thing that I want to distinguish, and, uh, and I did not put it on your notes, is that the, the, the decree is distinct from the execution of the decree, right? So um, God's decree is his purposing all that will come to pass. And then the execution of that decree is the actual coming to pass of all those things. And then as our confession helpfully breaks it down, or, and, as, and as the other Puritans did, between creation, right, which is the start, that, that, that's where created order comes into existence, and then providence, which is the sovereign guidance of creation to its intended goal. So, but we do want to make that nuance. When we talk about the decree, it is the pre-planning, if you will, right? It is the counsel ahead of time and the purpose that, that, that is made. And we're going to go into that as we get into this. So let's look at two key texts. And, and really, when, when, whenever you think about the doctrine of election or predestination or God's decree, this is like a number one text that needs to be highlighted, circled. You know, if you do the little uh, tabby things in your Bible, put one in Ephesians 1, right? This is like, this is like one of the infamous text, right? Not, not, uh, you know what I mean by infamous. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah go to Ephesians 1, and then let's read this together, because I want to I look at two texts, and then we'll kind of go into Old Testament and New Testament terms to kind of develop, okay, how does the scripture associate this with, with God's purpose? What are some of the nuances? And then we'll go on with some qualifications. So, in Ephesians 1, can I have 
uh, a volunteer read, uh, what did I put on here, 9 through 11. Crystal? Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Awesome. Yeah, and really, uh, uh, it's actually interesting. So Ephesians 1, uh, starting in verse 3, it's, it's, I think, one of the longest sentences in the Bible. So the sentence doesn't actually end until verse 14. But yes, I'm cherry-picking, and we're going to come back, right? We'll, we'll, we'll keep coming back to Ephesians 1. But for time's sake, just to help develop, I want you guys to see a couple of things. So look with me in verse 9. So we see a couple of key words that I want you guys to keep track of, right? So you see making known to us the mystery of his will. And we'll see that his will will have this aspect to it. According to his purpose, right? When we talk about decree, we're going to be talking about God's purpose. That's, a, that's really essentially what we're getting at, right? In verse 10, as a plan, right? So purpose, plan, uh, in, in, in verse 11, right? Having been predestined, right? Another, another key word. It's all going to be tying in together, right? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So counsel will be another word or aspect that's also tied in uh, with, with the decree. So really, when we look at Ephesians 1, it is um, uh, very condensed, right? There's a lot of meat packaged into this little tuna can, right? When, when, we, when we look at these uh, three verses. And then a second one that I want to look at as well that, that I found helpful in the Old Testament, turn with me to Isaiah 46. So we see Ephesians 1, you know, if you want to highlight or underline some of those key words, and then go back into the prophets. So when we go back, so we're talking about God's decree, and we see there terms like plan, purpose, predestined, counsel. <clears throat> and now in Isaiah, we're going to see the nuance that, that, that God makes with him determining, right, and then him bringing, bring, bringing to pass. Uh, if I can have a volunteer read Isaiah 46, and then we'll read verses... 8 through 11. Yeah, yep. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of the counsel from afar, country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. All right, awesome. This is one of those texts, another, you know, again, we got a New Testament one. Here's an Old Testament one. It just speaks beautifully to this, right? Because here is God distinguishing himself, especially in the latter part of Isaiah, from all the false gods, all the idols, right? And one of the things that marks him or identifies him as the true God is he's the one who has not only known these things, but he's the one who has purposed these things. He's the one who is driving them, and that's why he gets it right every time, is because it's been according to his counsel. It's been according to his purpose. So when you look, right, like he says in verse, in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Right? So we see these same ideas, right? where it is God's thought-through plan. When we, when we hear counsel, that's what we want to associate with it. Right? This, his wise dealings, his wise plan. And same thing with purpose. Right? Purpose has this idea of determining, right? setting forward a plan, what, what will take place. And like he says in verse 11, right? there's just so many different aspects, but look in verse 11. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it, right? And we're going to look at this later, right? We'll look at texts like Daniel. It's like, who's going to hold back God's hand, right? If he's the one who's done it, he doesn't need a counselor. No one's going to say, what are you doing, right? And, 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 and really it speaks, like we go back to chapter two of our confession, right? So many of these beautiful aspects of God, right? God's freedom, right? His independence, that he can do whatever he wants, right? And, and that's the best thing for us. So, so here's two key texts that help to start to situate us as we think about God's decree, right? So when we think about God's decree, um, it is meant to be an encouragement to us as his people. So now let's do this. We're going to spend some time in the Old and New Testament. And I want to say, yeah, I did provide 
So on your, on your notes, on your handouts, so what we'll do, we're going to follow Burkhoff here in his little systematic theology. I thought it was really helpful. So we're going to look at scriptural names for God's decree in the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at scriptural terms in the New Testament. So if I can have someone read, uh, as, as provided there in your notes, Isaiah 14, verses 26 through 27. And again, we're going we're to try to bring out what, what's the emphasis here in the text, right, as we try to bring together and then summarize as we get to the end. Who read Isaiah 14 for us? So God's purpose, right? Like, so if you want to look at the key words, so we look at in verse, verse 26, this is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth, right? And then in verse 27, the Lord of hosts has, has purposed and who will annul it, right? Who will turn it back? Now, when we look here, uh, I want to just read uh, two other translations just to help try to bring out um, what, what, what's going on here. So the Hebrew term behind this when we use the term purpose, right, the, the purpose of which he's purposed, it, it's based on this idea of advice or wisdom. So it's bringing out this emphasis is on wisdom or advice. So the NASB translated the plan devised or the NIV says the plan determined, right? So there's this, there's this thinking and putting together, if you will, from, uh, you know, a human thought concept of, of um, trying to explain this. So we see this idea of counsel or advice, right? Now, secondly, there's another one, uh, and we'll see this in Jeremiah 23, and that's to sit together in deliberation, right? And we'll see this with the phrase, the counsel of the Lord. So if I can have a volunteer read Jeremiah 23 in verse 18. Or who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Yes. So... This idea of counsel has this idea of deliberation. Now, now when, when, when we think with God, God, um, uh, we don't want to think of the decree of, in the sense of where there was deliberation and God was uncertain and then makes this decision. No, God's decree, it's, it's an eternal act, and, and, we'll, and we'll get to that. Um, uh, but it, it, it's using this phrase to help us see that there is this purpose and determined plan behind it. There's this wisdom that we would associate with it, God's wisdom. So then we see next, there's this emphasis with this word to meditate or to purpose, right? So these different phrases, they're hitting on God's purpose and they're, and they're bringing this to, to the fore. So uh, can I have a volunteer read Jeremiah 51? And then let's, let's look at verse 12. Yeah, Matt. Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. The watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes, for the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. Yes. So you see that there. The Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. And what we'll see is, well, when did God plan this, right? When did God purpose these things? And what we see, uh, as, and we'll, we'll get into this under an eternal act, is that this is from before the ages, from before the foundations of the earth. It's God's eternal purpose that he's working in Christ. And so what we see here, when, when, we, when we see the word planned, it's really bringing up this, this or the aspect, right, this, the, the Hebrew term, what it's really trying to bring out is pur uh, purposing with um, uh, a ponderance, like preponderance of the evidence kind of thing, right? You're pondering over it. You're thinking over it. And so there's this deep thought, if you will, when the Lord planned and purposed these things. Now look at this next one here in the Old Testament as we kind of wrap up. This is uh, one uh, from Isaiah 53. And, and this is an aspect when we think of God's will or his purpose, it's going to bring out this aspect of delight or pleasure. The thing that is pleasing. But it's, it's used in a context that, that really will kind of strike us odd, right? So look with me in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And if I can have a volunteer, who would be willing to read Isaiah 53, 10? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for 
shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All right, excellent. So that key phrase there in verse 10 is the will of the Lord, right? And again, so you're going to see words or terms that are used similarly. So purpose, plan, determination, counsel, will. A lot of those are going to be in the same bubble, right? Or circle, right? And they're going to have different emphases. And this one here, what I want to do is just read a couple other translations to show you how they help kind of convey the idea. So in the New King James, it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Or in the NASB, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Right? So that's the idea. Will or pleasure. And here specifically, it's talking about Christ, the Messiah, as a substitute for us. Right? The one who satisfies God's wrath for our sin. The death of Christ for sinners is a part of God's will and God's pleasure. Right? And and in one sense, that's kind of jarring, right? Because that was the most atrocious act of all of human history when the Son of God was crucified by lawless hands. Yet, and at the same time, it was also a part of God's predetermined plan from eternity past, right? That God would do this for the salvation of sinners and the glory of his name. So, then, so, so what do we see, right? When we, when we go to summarize this, we're talking, when we talk about God's decree, we're talking about his, purpo- his purpose, his plan, and we have this idea of advice or counsel, has this idea of pondering or even meditating on it, and it also has this idea of pleasure or something that's enjoyed or, or, or part of what's in someone's will or what we're inclined towards. So that's what we look at with the Old Testament. So now turn on your notes with me to the New Testament. We're going to see something similar here as we think about scriptural names for the decree in the New Testament. And so speaking of Isaiah 53.10, I I think this goes really well um, in Acts 2.23. So in Acts 2.23 on your notes, this also, sorry, on the the backhand of your notes, in Acts 2.23, this is going to be talking about God's um, purpose or determination based on his counsel and deliberation. So the the Greek term here is boule. And it's going to tie in nicely with what we just read in Isaiah 53.10. So in Acts 2.23, it says this, right? This is a part of Peter's sermon um, in Acts 2 to those in Jerusalem. And he says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So remember how we talked about in Isaiah 53.10. It was a part of the will's law. It was a part of God's will that Christ be crushed for sinners. And here we see in Acts 2.23 that this Jesus was delivered up according to the plan of the Romans according to the plan of the Jews, right? It was according to who? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, right? And that's what this word is bringing out, this idea of um, determination based on counsel and, and wisdom. The New King James says his determined purpose. The NASB says his predetermined plan. The King James Version says his determinate counsel. So you can see... Right, how, how each of these translations are trying to bring out these different emphases, right? And what it's pointing us to is when we think about God's sovereignty, what it should draw us to is to worship as we think of God's wisdom. Not only his knowledge, right? Which, you know, we talked about this when we thought about God's knowledge. That God's knowledge is all things possible and actual. But it is his wisdom that is the best ordering of all these things to bring out his intended purpose, which is what? To glorify his name in all things. That he would be exalted to the praise and honor of his name. All right, so when we, when we see these terms and we see these emphases, it should draw us near to think, God, you are a wise God. You are wise in all of your counsel, right? And it should floor us and humble us, right, as we think about this. So look with me next 
on your notes, let's look at Acts chapter 4. Right? Similar idea, using a similar term. So we have Peter preaching again. And in Acts 4, in verses 27 and 28, it's, he says this. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, so all these folks gathered, right? We've got, we've got Gentiles, we've got the Romans, we've got the government, we've got the Jews. We have all of them gathered together. And then look what it says in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, again, when we talk about God's wisdom, what's the context in Acts chapter 4? Right? Well, persecution has been introduced into the life of the church. Right? And as they come back and gather, Peter and the church, they're looking at Psalm 2. And then they're saying, what should our response be as we see persecution? Right? It is to worship God, that he is sovereign, and in his wisdom, how he has purposed all things, even that Christ would be delivered up, because Christ being delivered up was the best thing for sinners, right? Because it is our salvation. That's why we preach Christ and him crucified, right? I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. So that brings out this idea, when we talk about the, so the Greek word boule, has this idea of this plan, right, based on counsel and deliberation. So next, look with me. So there's another, again, this is a predominant word, and that's this Greek word, thelema. And it's, you'll see it a lot where it talks about God's will, right? The will of my Father in heaven, right? Um, uh, God uh, doing God's will, th things of that. It also has this idea of desire. And what it's stressing is God's choice based on God's desire. If I can have a volunteer, who'd be willing to read 2 Timothy 1.1? 1, 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. All right, excellent. Notice this, how we see this stress, right? Particularly of God's choice, right? Paul, of any... Was he someone who was following after Jesus, right? No. He was, and, and what I mean by that is, before he became a Christian, right, he was, hey, I, I was public enemy number one of the church, right? And yet, it was God's purpose who had not only saved him, but then also called him to be an apostle. He was set apart by God's will, by God's desire, and based on God's choice, right? And, and um, so we see that. So then turn with me. So our, our next one here on your notes is uh, to will or to, um, uh, I'm sorry, to will or to purpose. And it's, it's a Greek phrase that even brings out this idea of good pleasure. It's eudokia. And the EU, whenever you see that, it, it brings out this idea of like good news. So like um, uh, a, a eulogy, right? E, so eulogy, E-U-L-O-G-Y, right? It, it's a good word spoken. Right? And so whenever you see that EU, that's, that's generally what, it, what it's conveying. So here, when we see eudokia, right, it, it's stressing this idea of pleasure, what, what, what is pleasing to God. Right? So it's this aspect of God's will, but in particular, this, this stressing this pleasure aspect. And I really like what Burkhoff brought out here um, as he was working through this. And what he says is that in particular, what this word does is it emphasizes more particularly the freedom of the purpose of God and the delight with which it is accompanied. Now, I thought that was really beautiful. And we're going to think about this, I think it's next week, as we think about God's freedom as it relates to his decree, right? If you will, it's like a theater and it's putting on display that truly God is sovereign, right? And for us as his creatures... It just makes us want to bow down and worship. Truly, right? God is the most free. And so in particular, we see that with, this, with the use of this word here. And that's what he does when he uses this word in Ephesians 1.9. So when we look in Ephesians 1.9, where it says, Making known to us the mystery of his will 
And then that, that phrase, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, again, different translations are going to try to bring, bring out this emphasis. So, for example, in the New King James, either the King James or the NIV, they word it similarly where they say, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed. Right? Or the NASB, according to his kind intention. They're trying to get at this idea, right? This, this emphasis related to the pleasure taken in what God has purposed. Right? So, so what we see, right? If we kind of like, all right, we've, so we've seen the Old Testament terms. Now we've seen some of the New Testament terms. And what we're seeing is this overlap, right? We see this predetermined plan. We see this idea of um, God, and it's really based, what does God want, right? It, it's, it's based on his wisdom, right? It's based on, you know, the counsel within the Trinity, if, if you will. And so it really does highlight and showcase these, these different aspects. And uh, I thought a prism was a helpful example here, right? So you're familiar with a prism, right, where you, you take, like, the sun, and if you angle it right, Light hits the prism, and then you kind of see this rainbow, right, of, of colors. You see the spectrum of colors. Well, in the same way, right, we have God's one decree, but then through the prism of his decree, it, it really highlights some of these different aspects, right? His good pleasure or uh, his, his freedom and sovereignty in this or, um, uh, uh, as, as we thought about, his predetermined plan, um, uh, or his wisdom in, in all of this. It really does bring out these different hues and colors of God and what he decrees. So we've made, we've made a, lot of, uh, a, lot, a lot of ground, right, in regards to just like an introduction, looking at some of the Old Testament terms, New Testament terms, right, and then trying to get like a confessional start. So any questions or thoughts before we kind of hop into um, what's next? All right, all right, we'll keep going. So then, Gerhardus Voss, in his little uh, Reform Dogmatics, which, which again, is another helpful resource. I know I've, I've, I've um, used Burkhoff a lot, and uh, Gerhardus Voss is another one who's, who's, who's been really helpful. And he asked this question, as you can see on your notes, what truths do we emphasize when we attribute decrees to God? And specifically, it's, Three, three in particular that we've been talking about. And I found these uh, from Voss particularly helpful. So first, with God's sovereignty, all things stand dependent on God to create them. And because they depend on God, they are under his authority. And as such, the decree, if you will, showcases God's sovereignty. So how do we know God is sovereign? Because he's the one who has already planned and determined it. Right? But next, let us think about God's freedom. And here, I'll, I'll quote Voss because I found this helpful. When we decide on something, that includes that we make a free choice. While our freedom, however, is always relative. And as creatures, we are bound by many things. Right? So what he's saying is, there's, there's always an element of freedom in our decisions. And yet, even that freedom in the decisions that we make are constrained by certain things. So for us, for example, we're, we're creatures. We, um, we still have the old remnants for us in Christ. We still have the old remnants of remaining corruptible sin, right? We have um, uh, the way that we were raised. Uh, we have the things that are before us from a cultural standpoint. All those things impact us on the way in which we like things and we make decisions, right? But with God, there is no constraint, right? He, he doesn't have constraints from that standpoint. He's not influenced, right, to the good or to the bad, right? Because he is, uh, what is the, the norm word, uh, omnisapient, right? He is all wise. And so it is in his freedom that Voss says, the freedom of God in his decree is utterly unlimited and stands under no other rule than that of his own glorious virtues that form his being itself. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Truly. That the only thing that governs God and his decree 
is God himself. And Christian, that is the best thing for you and for me, right? That God does all that he pleases. But then third, like we talked about, is God's wisdom. And we made this nuance between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge of things, right, either potential or actual, and then God's wisdom, which is the best ordering for his intended outcome, which is, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, right, um, to the glory of God and um, or, uh, uh, um, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Sorry, I, uh, I'm slipping here. You guys can pull me off the stage. So... Um, right? That's God's intended purpose, right? It's to glorify his name and that all of creation would enjoy God as he is being magnified in all things, truly. And what does that highlight? That highlights his wisdom, right? And, 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 that, and that really kind of ties in back with what we had said from the catechism question, right? In question 10, right? When we, when we asked, what are the decrees of God? And we answered the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby, and this is the phrase I want to just highlight as we think about his wisdom, for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, right? And I want, so before we like take the next step in as we think about the decree, I just want to pause and highlight there for a minute because as we think about God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, right? And, and we think about his decree, and, and as we'll think about predestination and election and some of these things in future lessons, there will be questions that come to our mind, right? Because we start to draw near, as, as we did with the doctrine of God, there are things that are, in one sense, incomprehensible to us, right? How does all this really come together and fit, right? And, and, and there, there will be tension in our mind. And what I want us to do is keep this in front of us, right? The intended goal and aim of all of this is the glory of God. And when we hear of God's decree, when we hear of his predestinating grace, when we hear of election, how should we respond? So turn with me back to Ephesians 1. Again, like I said, you know, especially for the next, you know, two months, you might as well just put a, you know, a tab there, a quick, quick reference, because we will come here often, right? So Ephesians chapter 1, and I want, I want to see the intended aim the intended aim here. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. And what we'll do is we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. I know we read, read verse 11, but we'll also read verse 12 here. So follow along with me. Ephesians 1 verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this is the key phrase here in verse 12. And we'll see this in verses 6 and 14 as well. So that, right, what's the purpose, right? This, this purpose clause, right? We see this so that. We who were first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory, right? So if, if you start getting lost or confused as we think about this, which brothers and sisters, if you do, you're in, you're in good company, right? Because as we draw near with these things, there are things that will be challenging or, or will feel tension in our minds. I want us to keep this in mind, right? As we think about God's sovereignty, we, what we want it to do is drive in our hearts worship. Worship for the glory of God, right? Like Paul says here, right? That it would be to the praise of his glory, right? Or look in verse six, right? Uh, he even adds a little phrase here. To the praise of his glorious Grace, Or in verse 14, right? The end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory, right? So keep that in mind. That we want to be, you know, tattooed on the back of our eyelids, right? As we think about these things. As we think about God and his wisdom, God and his sovereignty, God and his freedom. What it should do is make us think, God, you truly are glorious, Right? That truly, it is to the praise, which is our appropriate response as we think on these things. And those other, uh, so the other two texts, Isaiah 43, 7 and Revelation 4, 11, what we see there is the same theme, right? We see 
the appropriate response that God created all of created order. It was for his glory. And then in Revelation 4, the appropriate response is praise. That they were all made according to his will. Right? So I just, I want that to be, you know, the seatbelt on the car in which we're driving, right? It's just always on as we're making turns, stop, go, the whole bit. So, all right. Now, we finished our introduction. <laughs> uh, that's all right, though. That, that, that's good. That was intended. Um, and what we'll do is we're going to hit one distinction. So we're going to make uh, four or five distinctions, and really the, most of the distinctions we'll make will come next week, right? As we try to think and help formulate and nuance and distinguish some of these things that will be next week. But what I want to hit on this morning is, is uh, th- this in particular, that the decree is a simple and eternal act, right? So because God is simple, right? So we, we talked about this, that God's not made up of parts or pieces, right? God is his attributes. He's pure spirit or pure act. So God's decree is simple, meaning it, it is one. And we'll, we'll talk about this in, in a little bit. Additionally, God's decree is eternal, right? Our confession states, God has decreed in himself from all eternity, right? So when we talk about this act that God does, it is an eternal act. But again, like we had in our previous lessons, we don't talk like this often, right? So what does that mean for something to be an eternal act, right? What, what exactly do we, get at, what, what, um, do we get at here? So turn with me. I, w- I want to show, what I want to do is just prove this idea of, of this aspect of that it's from all eternity, right, or it's eternal purpose, and then we're going to kind of make some nuances that theologians have made to help try to capture what the idea here. So uh, look with me. You should be open into Ephesians. Look in Ephesians 1, and uh, let's look at verse 4. So Ephesians 1, verse 4. And again, I want, to, I want to bring out this aspect. We're going to see some different ways in which the decree is an eternal act, right? It's not, a, it's not in time. So in Ephesians 1, in verse 4, Paul says... Even as he chose us in him, what? Before the foundation of the world, right? So before there was created order, God had purposed this, right? So that's so one way, or you'll see other phrases that'll be similar using that kind of language before the foundation of the world or, or things of that flavor. But now look in Ephesians 3, and Paul says it a little bit differently here, but he gets at the same idea. So in Ephesians chapter 3, And in verse 11, Ephesians 3 and verse 11, Paul says this, right? He he goes over the beautiful riches of the Gentiles being engrafted in with the Jews, right? And how this mystery was the, um, uh, the revealing of God's will. And then in verse 11, he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it's an eternal purpose. All right, so we see some of these phrases. And so Burkhoff helpfully states that the, de- the divine decree is eternal in the sense that it lies entirely in eternity, right? Which, if you're like me, that just brings up more question marks because eternity is something that I struggle to grasp, right? We use phrases to help define what eternity is not right? It's not time. There is not a succession of moments or time in eternity. And so, um, so what, what exactly do we mean by this? And Burkhoff, I found uh, extremely helpful here. So what he said, how, how do we help make some of these nuances? So he says, when we talk about an eternal act, we're communicating that in the same way that God is eternal, right? There's no sequence of time in God. All things are in the present tense, if you will. So the decree is an eternal act as it is without sequence in time. Now, and here's a helpful nuance. There is a sense in which all God's acts are eternal because God does not have a succession of moments. And and, and we're going to clarify that. But theologians make a clarifying distinction within God's acts. Some acts are temporal, right? Temporal being a time word in that they are terminated or completed or executed 
in human history or time. Like th- and we think of things like creation or providence or justification. All of these things take place in time. So we make this nuance that we call that a temporal act because of when it's completed. But yet there's other acts like God's decree, which are eternal in that strictest sense, right? And so uh, where it does not have a succession of time. And Sam Renahan on your notes helpfully says, right? He's like, all right, well then how do we help summarize this? Another way to describe the eternality of the decree is to say that it is a constant decree. There was no moment in which the decree of God was not established or a moment in which the decree was being established. Now, again, you're going to feel tension in your mind because when we think of counsel, plan, right, what do we think? We're think we, we only think in matters of time, right? And now we're putting all this together and saying we have the thought concept But as it applies to God, there is no succession in time. It is all in the present tense, right? And then we respond in worship because we can't fully grasp that, right? We feel that tension. Now, I want to make an additional nuance. So as we talk about the decree as an eternal act, right? And we're trying to use clarifying language. But when we see the decree worked out, we see the decree worked out and executed in time, right? So we, we, we see a succession in the way that it's rolled out, right? So we almost think, well, then, is there a succession in the decree? And Burkhoff here, I think, helpfully makes this nuance that I, that I found helpful. He says, the eternity of the decree also implies that the order in which the different elements in it stand to each other may not be regarded as temporal, but only as logical, there is a real chronological order in the events as effectuated or as they're completed, but not in the decree respecting them, right? So it's helping us to make a a distinction between how we see and realize and understand them and how they're worked out and how they relate to God as an eternal act. And I think that's an important nuance and distinction that we make. But then secondly, I want to make a further distinction as we talked about that God's decree is one. And again, I'm I'm going back to Burkhoff because I just found what he said helpful. And you'll see it here on your notes, on your notes here, this last one where he says, though we often speak of the decrees of God in the plural, yet in its own nature, the divine decree is but a single act of God. There is already suggested by the fact that the Bible speaks of it as a prothesis, Greek word for purpose, a purpose or counsel. It follows also from the very nature of God. His knowledge is all immediate and simultaneous rather than successive like ours. What does that mean? Right. Our thinking is successive. We had one thought, then we build on that. And then with those thoughts together, we build on another thought. But God's thoughts are all simultaneous. It's all at once. And so he says, and his comprehension of it all is always complete. And the decree that is founded on it is also a single, all comprehensive and simultaneous act. As an eternal and immutable decree, it could not be otherwise. And then this I thought was helpful. There is therefore no series of decrees in God, but simply one comprehensive plan embracing all that comes to pass. Our infinite comprehension, however, constrains us to make distinctions, right? So when we think about God, it's right for us to say, right, it's his one purpose, one eternal act, right? The decree of God. But when it comes to our understanding, right, or the matter in which we perceive or understand this, It constrains us to make distinctions. And this accounts for the fact that we often speak of the the decrees of God in the plural. This manner of speaking is perfectly legitimate, provided we do not lose sight of the unity of the divine decree and of the inseparable connection of the various decrees as we conceive of them. Right. So what we're trying to do is tie back 
right? This simple and eternal act, right? That God has purpose in himself. And we're trying to use language, trying to pick up what the scriptures intended and then use language that helps us to capture and qualify and make some of these nuance so we can rightly understand and see the beauty of God's wisdom in his decree. So I know we're right up on time. Does anyone have any questions before, before we close? Yes. I wonder if we're going to cover this, but I'm glad that we end up with this. So. See, Norm, I was thinking about you, and I not only covered it, but I wanted to make sure you had a backup copy, because I know you. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Just a comment about what you said about it should drive us to worship, you know? Because it, uh, it kind of provides us some kind of satisfaction as an outlet of that tension. Yes. You know, our tendency would be to bring God to our own understanding. In mm. the time aspect, we're kind of confined on that world of time. And then so this pro, just the act of worship and God, God giving us the heart to, to go there. Yes. That satisfies it all. Otherwise, it would be like, I can't think about this. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. No, I, I, I love that. That, that, that I, I love how you worded that, right? That, that's where our tension finds its satisfaction and, and where our hearts find joy in this. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead. Let's, let's thank, our Lord, thank our Lord for our time and then, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we do worship you and praise you. We um, are delighted that through the Son and in the power of the Spirit, we, we, know, we know you. And we pray even now that as we have got to learn of your sweet decree, as you, have provid- as you have planned all things and that for the good of your people, we do worship you and glorify you and rejoice to the praise of the glory of your grace. And we even pray now that you would bless us as we gather for corporate worship, for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen. You are dismissed.